Hello, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kyle Wing, from EPAM Continuum. The U.S. population is aging. In 2010, there were 40 million Americans over the age of 65. Today, well, the last time the Census Bureau pulled the information last year, there were over 54 million. This number is sharply increasing. By 2060, that number is expected to jump from 54 to 95 million. That means 65-plus adults will make up over one-quarter of Americans. The next logical question is, as this population ages, what happens? Well, a lot. Some great, like getting to spend more time with your loved ones, but other knock-on effects pose challenges, most obviously on our healthcare infrastructure. But today, we're going to be looking at one challenge that may be getting overlooked. As the 65 and overcrowd continues to grow, how does this disproportionately rural population get around? With no sign of serious alternative transportation infrastructure gaining the political energy it needs, the answer is likely that these folks will continue to drive. As soon as we agree on that answer, we can begin to focus on ways to make driving safer and more enjoyable for this population. At EPAM Continuum, we've done a lot of our thinking around this already in a concept project called Silver Key. So we've invited an expert to the conversation to get their take and pick their brain about this space. Our guest today is Joe Coughlin, director of MIT's Age Lab, a multidisciplinary research program working to improve the quality of life of older people. Coughlin is a professor in MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning and the Sloan School of Management. He's served on advisory committees for the White House and Massachusetts governor. Coughlin is a senior contributor to Ford's and writes regularly for MarketWatch and the Wall Street Journal. Listen as our travel and hospitality vertical lead Dustin Boudet and Coughlin discuss how cars are turning into spaceships, the importance of transportation alternatives to driving, and how to innovate while keeping things familiar enough for comfort. Can you, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the work you're doing over at the Age Lab and give us a, a bit of background for anybody that's unfamiliar with uh, your, your work with MIT? Sure. My, my team at the MIT Age Lab, uh, we are based in the School of Engineering, uh, and, uh, but we have a very multidisciplinary group because if you think about it, aging, and by the way, we go across the generations, so this is not just about anyone you think is older than you, therefore they are older. Um, we go across generations because you have to compare what's different between one group to another to not only have good science, but also to delve good insights. And so the team is about one-third every flavor of psychology you could imagine, uh, one-third engineering and data science, largely doing a lot of our transportation work. And then another third are the folks that kind of provide the glue, the social workers, the gerontologists, uh, political scientists, economics, if you will. Aging is a multidisciplinary sport, and living well, living longer, and living better requires that kind of thinking. And so the lab uses that team. Uh, we are funded entirely by industry uh, to explore the future of transportation and community, caregiving, home services, and even longevity planning, which uh, if we have it our way, we will change the notion of retirement planning to longevity planning. But as uh, Jimmy Buffett would say, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Well, that's great. And it's it's awesome to hear you say that aging is more than just our, our senior population because um, you know, as we were thinking about this uh, this work and this space, we we found that uh, you know if you're designing solutions that work really well for seniors, they're going to work really well for the rest of the population. Um, you know, we in focused in safe driving, we're thinking about seniors, but uh, we found that there's this really interesting inverse bell curve in 
the dangers of, of driving. So you, you've got your really young drivers, 15, 16, 17, um, are the, the riskiest drivers. And then that risk goes down until you're about what, 55 or, or 60. And then it starts kind of, um, you know, ramping right back up. And we were really focused on drivers kind of 65 and above because when we think about it, they're going to be, I think the stat was by 2025, they're going to be representing one in four drivers, which is pretty amazing if you ask me. Yeah. Now, and if you look at it, the, the infamous U-curve that's used in transportation safety uh, shows what you were just talking about, that between 16 and 24, uh, they are the most most lethal drivers. Hence, that's why they typically pay more insurance. Um, and they're lethal because I think it's proof, generally speaking, that testosterone, because it's mostly the young guys, and gasoline do not mix with alcohol very well. And so you see a lot of the fatality uh, at that end of the curve related to uh, pure behavior. There's a lot of debate as to why we see death and injury, uh, shall we say, at the other end. Um, there are some who believe that that birthdays predict and I'm happy to tell you and anyone who's listening that birthdays do not predict anything. In fact, birthdays do not kill, health conditions do. And so what I would suggest is that as you look at the, uh, definitely the fatality rate at the other end of the curve, what you're looking at is that the same injury that someone 40, 50 years old may have gotten that may have led to, shall we say, a uh, broken rib or two, leads to a deadly pneumonia or another a punctured lung or something like that, or the very safety system designed to keep that smaller, older woman safe actually may have killed her. And so um, there's still some debate in that, but I'm on the side of that it's less about the driver per se than it is the context that we have put them in. That's great. And I think that leads us really nicely into the, the next uh, area I'd love to talk about is um, how we're designing these systems and, and technology for senior drivers. And um, how do you think we're doing as designers of these systems uh, for our older counterparts? Well, I'd also like to kind of, shall we say, parse the vehicle when we talk about design as well, because in the last 10, 20 years, we can't ignore the uh, the electronics, the computerization of the vehicle. As most of us now know that essentially our four rubber wheels are, are essentially holding up a computer uh, that is mobile. So we should talk about the design and interface with the technology. We should talk about the design of ingress and egress of the vehicle. And then ultimately, of course, the, 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 the safety uh, elements. So I, I would divide the, the design question in, into three. Uh, but bef before we, we go there, uh, Dustin, one of the things I would also suggest people think about is the changing nature of why people drive, where they're going to go, the types of trips. And it's only then that you can start to think about what's the nature of the vehicle going to be. It's not about making today's vehicle safer. It's about, frankly, an entirely new lifestyle that's being born out of a new group of older drivers. This group of drivers has been driving even longer than previous generations. They are more educated. They are more tech savvy. And by the way, 70% of the 50 plus population in the United States live in suburban and rural areas. That car is not just about transportation. It is fundamentally a lifeline providing them with mobility to the things they need as well as the things they want because transit either serves poorly or does not exist where they live. 
And I think that's such an interesting topic. Um, I'd love to put a pin in that for for later in the conversation, just around um, slowing the cognitive decline through connection to your community. And it's exactly what you're saying, you know, with um, seniors being increasingly inhabiting, you know, suburban and rural communities, I think car is such an important lifeline. But uh, back to your your kind of, I think that was a really nice division of how we think about the the vehicle um, and thinking about you know how we've evolved from a a really simple interface in the car to something that's you know so much more advanced. It's a you know computer on wheels. Um, how do we balance the the complexity and learning curves of this new technology with the actual benefits it's providing seniors? And, you know, unfortunately, that is still very much a work in progress. You know, uh, decades ago, the car was a product of designers with largely mechanical engineers uh, and even a few civil engineers thrown in there for color. Today, if you will, the vehicle is more a reflection of what aerospace engineers have put into the pilot's cockpit. The challenge is, is that the pilot is trained and checked out uh, both health-wise and usability-wise on, on a regular basis. What we have done now, to your point, is that we've added an incredible complexity, all with very good intent in terms of convenience and safety and comfort and the like. But here's the challenge. We have not taken on the issues that pilots have to deal with, which is data fusion. How do I take in all those different inputs from things that beep and bop and and seats that vibrate to to uh, uh, lights on on the dashboard? Not to mention the countless smaller buttons and smaller dials that require a greater target time uh, for people of any age, let alone older age, wearing bifocals to identify the sound, respond to what the alarm is, and then to reach where they need to go. So I would say that it's a work in progress. We are still designing for a pilot. Uh, and for those who are doing better, generally speaking, they're still designing for about a five foot 10, 27 year old male, both in terms of the structure of the vehicle, as well as the toys and the technologies behind the dash. And uh, I love that you use the the pilot analogy because I often refer to these, the newer vehicles as, you know, the cockpits to spaceships. And there are so many controls and um, it seems like they've elevated everything to have, uh, you know, a, a control at the, the top level of the hierarchy. And I'm interested to hear your perspective as we move toward larger touchscreens and, and more contextual interfaces. Um one, do you think we're we're currently doing a good job of that? And two, what do you what do you think the the future holds for um, removing some of that burden and distraction from the interface? Well, we saw a little bit of a live experiment in that back in 2005. In fact, my lab was working with BMW, who's an incredible innovation shop. They're a lot of fun to work with. And if you remember in 2005, they introduced the iDrive, that little central controller to, to uh, essentially navigate a, a central screen that did everything from your tire pressure to your radio to your nav system and the like. And the idea was to clean up all that real estate, as we like to call it, on the dashboard, to, to eliminate some of the buttons, the dials, and, and and the like. And that was a brilliant move because it did effectively simplify the, the real estate, but it also really required the driver to learn an entirely new menu structure. So when they first deployed that or commercialized it in the United States, they saw great challenges because at that point, the average BMW driver was clicking over age 50 and they were having to relearn how to drive. The challenge to real innovation, real design, 
is to leave enough breadcrumbs as to where the designer wants you to go without being so far out front to show your intelligence that you leave your consumer behind. So I'll just give you a little example of, of the, di- the designer's dilemma, which is they could not, they BMW working with us, could not figure out why the, the system was not taking off as well as it should. In fact, a lot of the complaints they were getting was about switching radio stations and the like. Now, a lot of us don't have that problem now because we don't necessarily use AM radio for traffic. But the fact of the matter is, is what was going on was that they could not understand why there was such frustration with drivers who wanted to go between FM and AM radio. Because in an old-fashioned radio, you could hit one button to get immediately to the AM station to give you traffic reports and one button back to perhaps what you wanted to listen to, music or some other, other programming. Whereas the design to simplify actually added complexity. It required me to learn a new menu. It took two, three, four, five clicks to get what I uh, used to do with one thumb or or one index finger push. You know, politics and design have a lot in common. People will never be upset with you for not giving them something they've never had. But boy, they will hold you hostage for taking away something that they've ever always enjoyed. And so what we've seen is that technology evolved over time. BMW and others have been using that central controller idea and simplified the uh, the dash. Uh, we, we found that, for instance, adding a little mental model such as an escape key that at the 11 o'clock position that brings you to the top of the uh, menu structure made it far easier to understand because older people in particular – we're saying, gee, what is this thing in my hand that I'm manipulating what appears to be a cursor on a screen? Well, they went back to their mental model. It's a mouse. But wait a minute. I can't easily get to the top of the menu and I can't move this side to side. It's a very bad mouse. And so what designers have to do is to break that mental model, but leave just enough so that I can learn how to use it. Because very few of us want to have the second largest purchase we make, our car, be, shall we say, a, a devil's deal with trying to learn it. We should enjoy it. And some of these these interactions, there there requires a little bit of uh, a learning curve to understand how to interact. You know what that human machine interface is going to be. A lot of the manufacturers are moving towards a uh, you know direct input methods, touch screens, and we're seeing this this trend of larger and larger touch screens in a in a car. At what point? Do we see diminishing returns or have we already started to see them? And um, what's your opinion on the the need for controls that allow us to have muscle memory, especially with the driving experience? Yeah, especially as the technology now is moving at a a half uh, life uh, or speed of uh, consumer electronics. It used to be if you bought a car, you kept it seven, eight years. And generally speaking, the next car you had had a better color, perhaps a better smell, but you kind of knew where everything was. We are now seeing technology moving so fast that even every time you rent a car or get into a new vehicle, it's relearning all the time. I would suggest that probably what we're going to have to start seeing is not just larger screens so that I can see them or haptic interfaces that are easier to manipulate, but a higher priority put on personalization. So as part of that purchasing experience, some dealers already do this, but they don't do it enough as far as I'm concerned, which is to understand how you drive, what you prioritize. What do you want to see in that that field of view, your, your first level field of view or the primary era um, uh, real estate versus the secondary versus the center stack? 
over time, I bet what we'll be able to do is to put some machine learning in the car that will understand Joe seems to ignore two-thirds of the electronics in the vehicle, but he really prioritizes these. So let's put this at the top, if you will, of that screen structure. Um, and so in many ways, they will start to replicate what a lot of us have on our cell phones, 50 on apps and then five that we actually use. That's great. And the, the personalization aspect, um, we're, we're getting into some, uh, some sticky territory, in my opinion, as we're, we're trading a little bit of that access and uh, to our kind of driving and behavior, uh, allowing that monitoring. So, you know, what's, what's the fine line that we're walking um, in the balance of privacy and convenience here? Well, you know, it's interesting is that privacy, and that goes across my entire lab and my team looking at it, whether it's privacy in your homes, the medication you're taking, how much your refrigerator knows you've been sneaking more than your fair share of Ben and Jerry's, whatever it might be. What we find, however, is privacy is the new currency. So while most of us will say that our privacy is a priority, I don't want to share it's amazing how much of your privacy you'll give up for a tangible good. I like to say my American Express knows more about me than my wife of 30 plus years. And so one of the things we may see in the vehicle, as we are seeing in the home, as we see with our financial transactions, is I am allowing a vendor, a platform, whomever it might be, information about me as long as I am getting a tangible benefit, which could be ease of use could be customized information, uh, the, the idea of more comfort, if you will, in the vehicle, because it knows my positioning, my health condition, what I like to do and how I behave. So I would say, yes, privacy is going to continue to be an issue, uh, but it's amazing how many of us are willing to negotiate if we see something at the other end. Speaking of negotiating that privacy, uh, you know, something that we were thinking about as we, you know, really investigated senior driving and the connection to the community and family was this idea of looping in your family members into uh, the conversation of, of, you know, potentially declining uh, ability to drive and sharing, you know, some of the, the driving behaviors and, um, you know, participating a little bit in, in some level of monitoring. Uh, any thoughts or um, insights there? Well, you know, we're approaching uh, Thanksgiving season. And unfortunately, Thanksgiving is when we seem to identify more drivers that might be uh, uh, candidates for giving up the keys. Because unfortunately, what we have is typically adult children who've not seen their parents for a while sitting down at the Thanksgiving table and they see a couple scratches on the car or they saw dad or mom pulling into the driveway in a way they didn't particularly like. And the conversation kind of goes like this, pass the peas and hand over the keys. And the fact of the matter is that driving is far more than getting from point A to B. That, that would be a nice, easy urban planning problem to solve. In fact, it's about independence and security uh, and freedom. And so as a result, that privacy to have someone watching me is something that turns into often an exceedingly conflictual, emotional conversation. However, we at the Age Lab, particularly my colleague, Dr. Lisa D'Ambrosio and others, have done a lot of work on how to have that conversation. So even if you did have the data, which I'm not entirely sure people would prefer, but even if you had the data, the question then becomes, have you done the homework to start planning the alternatives? 
Have you thought about the power of the conversation? It's not one fender bender that should predict. It should be a change in health conditions. It should be can be confusion behind the wheel, getting lost. These are indications that it's no longer safe to drive. Hitting the mailbox or you know hitting a shopping cart, uh, how many of us would like to admit to that? Last thing is, and perhaps this is where you might be thinking of going in terms of data collection, the person we will most trust to give us advice on how well or how poorly we are driving is the person that rides with us. So just because dad hit a birthday or mom doesn't look that great, the fact of the matter is they are more likely to listen to you and believe it or not, actually relinquish the keys without much of a fight. If you have driven with them considerably and you can identify clear areas where there's a challenge uh, to their driving ability. That's really good insight. Do you think that, um, you know, technology offers us the ability to collect objective data and have a conversation based in fact and, and not emotion and use some of those things that you were talking about, you know, confusion behind the wheel, uh, potentially reaction time, um, looking at trends more longitudinally uh, to have more effective conversations with our family because they are wrought with emotion and stress when, when uh, it does happen. And usually it's, it's happening later than it should. Yeah. I do think that that, that data would certainly help um, either start the conversation or provide, shall we say, uh, uh, in many ways, evidence. I do not believe that we will ever uh, take out the emotion or the intensity unless you've got a seamless, safe, easy, socially acceptable alternative. I mean, the number one alternative to driving yourself is riding with somebody else who does drive, then walking, and if transit's available, maybe transit after that. So the emotion will always be there because this is not about going to the grocery store. It is not about going to the doctors. As I like to say, the number one metric of whether you've got true transportation alternatives is it's a hot summer night and you want a soft serve ice cream cone. No one books that ahead of time. No one buys a cab fare. Few people get on the tee. And most of us don't want to bother our oldest adult daughter, who's the caregiver, to do that. And so taking away that seamless ability to go where you want, when you want, uh, is something that's always going to be an emotional charge discussion. And thinking about that transition, uh, I wonder how we can engage senior drivers um, in some of that driving and, and coach them to improve their ability or, or slow the decline instead of replacing it. Because I think what we're hearing is there's this silver bullet coming and autonomous driving is going to solve all our issues. But uh, I personally don't think that that's the solution. I think um, engaging drivers as opposed to replacing them, uh, there's, there's a, a middle ground there to use technology to augment their ability as opposed to replace it. Yeah, it was always the philosophy of the Age Lab, and I started the Age Lab based upon uh, the notion that technology is an assistive technology to everyone at every age. So it's how do we better engage, train, keep awareness, uh, and, and to compensate for whatever that driver's uh, failings or even their strengths might be behind the wheel. So I definitely agree with you on that. But it's also, it's, it's got to be a systems approach. It's got to be about managing our health, our nutrition the medications we take. This is not just a relationship between the driver and the vehicle and the infrastructure, the classic transportation matrix. Rather, this is really about how well the individual can maintain themselves in optimal performance. Polypharmacy 
at any age jeopardizes your ability of any technology or any vehicle system to drive well. Being well-nourished at any age is also a problem. So it's it's about that cognitive performance. It's about caring for ourselves, but also to the, your point about having technology in the car that might be able to monitor those changes. I would submit that the technology is available today and that many of us in our 20s and 30s and beyond would be kind of shocked at how stress affects our driving capability. Not any phone call or cell phone call, but the one from your boss that says we need to talk. And in the words of Jerry Seinfeld, no one needs to talk and what that does to your stress driving down the road. So no, I think that we really need to think about driving performance and well-being across the lifespan. I think the stress uh, point is, is such a good one. And if you know anyone has ever driven in the rain or hard snow, that instinctual reflex to to turn down the radio so you can concentrate and uh, kind of reduce that that additional input is is one that uh, everyone has done. No, I've got colleagues in the lab, uh, Brian Reamer and Bruce Mailer, who have worked on the issues of stress and distraction their entire careers. And they will tell you that that cortisol uh, rush that you get when somebody cuts you off or a poor phone call or something else that's on your mind can be a, as lethal as we describe somebody that, quote unquote, is too old to drive and think it's all about their age rather than their actual health. And coming back to that point that you made about what is the transition plan away from driving and, and having that um you know, plan in place long ahead of time. It it makes me think about uh, community connection and you know building an ecosystem that a senior can uh, can drive in, also connect to, and and maybe assist others um, before their you know their cognitive decline has started. Have you guys done any thinking about um, the ecosystem of driving and how they connect to their communities? No, absolutely. And this has been an area of research for um, decades, not just with us, but in the field in general. So there are volunteer driver networks, probably the best known and most successful is the Independent Transportation Network, started by a good friend, Kathy Freund, up in Portland, Maine. Uh, and that's gone global, let alone uh, national. So a, a network of volunteers of other people like me or like you, so to speak, uh, giving rides. Uh, our communities provide van service. Our transit systems provide assistive, uh, assistive transportation. The problem is that most of those alternatives, however, do create what I call a mobility triage. They will get you to the doctor, the grocery store, and things you need. Transportation is about being the glue that holds together all those big and little things you call life together. So it's the trips you want that are the most important, not necessarily the trips you need. And by the way, just one quick thing you mentioned, Dustin, what we're having here is a failure to think in terms of systems integration. The driverless car, my colleagues in the lab are doing considerable work on, on adoption of these technologies as, as we move down the road, mixed metaphor intended, to the autonomous vehicle. But the challenge is the following. If you're not well enough to drive due to physical well-being or cognitive performance, who puts you in the car? How do you get from the couch into the driverless vehicle? Who do you trust to have an, in that vehicle by themselves? And by the way, who gets mom out of the car at the other end to get to the final destination? So when we think about transportation innovation, yes, the vehicle is a major part of it. The infrastructure, the individual. 
but we have to think about the context, the nature of trips, and the changing nature of the user. And it seems like we have some, you know, fragmented players in that that area. You know, whose whose job is it really to think about that? Um, you know, outside of the vehicle, I think we have manufacturers clearly thinking about um, the experience inside the vehicle. But you know, that last fifty feet or that last mile, um, who who should we be uh, leaning leaning on or leaning into for for that type of work? You know, it's interesting. To my knowledge, I do not know of any major institution thinking about that. We certainly have city governments and and, and others that are uh, promoting initiatives such as uh, uh, age-friendly communities, livable communities, talking about generally the infrastructure or the sidewalks, the connectivity, if you will. Uh, as you mentioned, the auto industry is certainly interested in everything that's within the greenhouse of the vehicle itself. Uh, but right now, the people that are doing the integrating of how mom gets in and out of the car tends to be their caregivers. Um, and so that's leaving a very big job for people that are already, shall we say, underwater with both emotional, physical, and financial stress of providing care. And being on the cutting edge, Joe, I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, with only a couple of minutes left, what are the most exciting things that you see right now or that you're working on that uh, you think offer the most benefit or promise for some of our senior drivers? So I think one of the things that we're seeing is that, for instance, my friends and colleagues at AARP have fully integrated technology into their driver safety program. So to the point you raised earlier, it's about how do we keep drivers not just driving safely, but how do we improve their performance or keep them, shall we say, fit in terms of driving? I do think the industry has done a far better job than they have in the past to making a car that is not an old man's car because we know from the industry and from almost every other product category that if I make an old man's car or an older woman's car, that a young man won't buy it, neither will a younger woman. But more importantly, an old man and old lady will run from it with their hair on fire, if you will. So I think they're finding ways of designing an ageless vehicle that is safe for all, that is easy for all, that's personalized with performance that's about the driver, not just about their age or, frankly, for that matter, of the gender. And then finally, I think many communities, not nearly enough, um, are moving past age-friendly, which to me seems just a little too polite. They're moving towards being age-ready. What are the transportation alternatives we can provide people that have paid their taxes, lived their life, and deserve to remain seamless, safe, and mobile for a lifetime? Well, that is fantastic. Uh, Joe, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, one last question, and then uh, we'll let you hop off. Um, We've talked a lot about, you know, designing technologies for seniors. Uh, what I'd like to, to ask you before we leave is, how do you think seniors are adapting to technologies? Well, I think older adults are adapting far greater than we ever thought uh, possible. We had this mythology that older people don't like technology. In fact, with all deference to my friends that are engineers and designers, do you know what we call technology that older adults either don't understand, can't use, or don't want to use? bad technology. It is the only domain where we blame the consumer, the user, for the failings of the design community and the engineering community to make it ready to use. COVID has demonstrated that, by the way, with enough need, with a value proposition and a simplistic design, they will jump that digital divide as fast, if not faster than many younger people. We just need to raise the bar in design 
engineering and making a value proposition that says, yes, I need this, I need to learn it, and I will use it. Well, Joe, thank you for spending the time, this half an hour with us. It's been a really enlightening conversation for me, and um, I appreciate your insight, and um, it's exciting to hear about all the great work that uh, you and the rest of the team are doing over at the Age Lab. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we are very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Joe Coughlin, it was a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. Dustin Butet, our travel and hospitality vertical lead, was our astute interviewer. Our producer, Ken Gordon, always tops off the oil before a road trip. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer. And I'm your host, Kyle Wing. Until the next one, thank you. Thank you.